Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the government has revealed its back-to-school plan yesterday, and it involves rapid testing, stricter screening, and enhanced cohorting measures. But the plan still has a lot of question marks. Give you the lowdown of what's happening there. Should Canada let people govern themselves and just open up like our friends in the States are doing with pandemic regulations? And as the microchip shortage continues, is it time for us to go back to the basics when it comes to what's in our cars? Lorraine Summerfield, author and auto columnist, uh, will join us to talk about that. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We know about the big announcement a couple of days ago from the Ford government that uh, schools will reopen, uh, effective on Monday, of course. And almost 4 million rapid tests are being shipped to schools across the province as the Ontario government readies for next week's return to in-person learning. Now, the new measures include stricter screening protocols, enhanced cohort measures. Uh, Global's Andrew Graham has some details. Those in childcare settings as well as staff and students in public elementary schools will each be sent home with two rapid tests next week. Education Minister Stephen Lecce says the tests will be made available for secondary school students only if needed. These tests are for use when symptomatic, as outlined in the updated school and child care screener that has been strengthened. Families will only learn about the situation in schools if 30% of staff and students are absent, but a reason for the absences will not be given. School boards will also be allowed to combine classes or rotate between in-person and remote days. Andrew Graham, Global News. Thanks, Andrew. Uh, a lot of questions about this. Boy, the, I've got emails, I've got phone calls about this. Say, what's up with this? What's going on here? We're going to give you a chance to, to comment on this yourself. Uh, later on this hour, as a matter of fact, I'm going to open the phone lines up and uh, emails, of course, for your thoughts about what you think about the back-to-school plan by the Ford government. And uh, we'll give you that opportunity. Uh, you'll have the platform. Uh, to get a perspective on what's going on here, we're pleased to welcome back to the program uh, Mike Schreiner. Mike, of course, is the leader of the Ontario Green Party and the MPP for Guelph. Uh, Mike, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, Bill. It's always a pleasure to join you as well. Uh, you were surprised by the announcement. Initially, they talked about, of course, extending the well, winter break, I guess, as they called it, uh, the Christmas break, uh, until this coming Monday. Uh, I, I there was an anticipation, and I know you know, Mike, in some circles at Queen's Park, that they might even extend it to the end of the month, and all of a sudden they said, no, 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 it's going to be this coming Monday. Uh, first of all, your your reaction to that announcement? Well, you know, Bill, I think the Ontario Science Table has been very clear that the best place to, for kids is to be in school, both for their mental health and also to cover the learning gaps. And so I absolutely support kids being back in school. The question is, is are we going to take the measures needed to, you know, ensure that our schools are safe? And I think one of the big mistakes the Ford government made with their announcement is not keeping parents informed. Um, I think one of the best ways to ensure public confidence uh, in having children back in class learning is to say, we're there to support them. We're going to make the investments to support our students, and we're going to ensure that students, parents, and educators have the information they need to make informed decisions. And so the fact that, you know, if one person in my child's class um, has lice, I find out about it. But if one person has COVID, I, I won't find out about it. To me, it just doesn't make sense. And so that's why we've been calling for the government to be just honest and transparent with Ontarians about you know, saying, what are the case and outbreak numbers in schools? How many N95 masks are available to students and educators in schools? Um, you know, is your child's classroom, does it have proper ventilation or HEPA filter? 
Um, you know, what are the vaccination rates, uh, of both educators and students, and what are we going to do, especially to um, increase uh, the vaccination of students? Uh, what are your students' class size? So I think th that type of information, so students and educators, school staff can all make informed uh, decisions because we want to put the well-being of our students first and having them in school is putting our students first. And I agree with you, by the way. I, I'm, I'm fully supportive of having the students back. Uh, but under the correct circumstances, as you mentioned, I, I, I tell you, one of the head scratchers for me, though, Mike, is what criteria are they using to make these decisions? And I know that sounds like a rather, you know, broad based question. But, you know, when they announced that they were going to extend the, the Christmas break, they said, well, you know, we're going to do it this way until we see that there's going to be a decrease in hospitalizations and ICU admissions. Well, <laughs> both those numbers are up from the time that the premier made the announcement, yet he's going to open the schools anyway. So, uh, and that's fine that they're going to open the schools. Uh, I think we're going to have a long conversation here about whether or not they're going to have the tools. But this, this runs contrary to what the premier said just 10 days ago. Yeah, the, the mixed messaging, the flip-flopping, the um, last-minute decision-making uh, doesn't provide the kind of, isn't the kind of leadership Ontario needs, and it doesn't provide the kind of public confidence we need. And so, I, you know, one of the things that um, an epidemiologist at the University of Guelph told me early, early days of the pandemic, that one of the most important ways that you can address a pandemic from a leadership standpoint is to be very transparent and honest with people about what the numbers are telling you, what the numbers are, what they mean, and what your goal is, like what's the goal? And that's how you build public confidence, mobilize the public, get us all on the same page working together. And I think in the early days of the pandemic, so I'm thinking back to March and April of 2020, um, you know, that was kind of how we were operating, but that's deteriorated over time. And so I think with, with the, just the lack of leadership and transparency at the provincial level, it just, I think the public rightfully feels like, well, decisions are being made on the back of a napkin or what numbers are they using? What numbers are they not using? What do they mean? What's our actual goal? Where's the consistency in the messaging? Uh, and so, you know, I think that has undermined our ability to help, you know, contain and, and mitigate the spread of COVID and, and just to really address and hopefully have an opportunity to talk about just the severe staffing shortages we're facing in our healthcare system, because right now, one of the most important things we need to be doing is shoring up our healthcare system. Well, I, I, I'm going to kind of get around to that. But first of all, I want to talk about the severe shortages in the classroom. We yeah. don't know who's going to show up on Monday. Uh, we talked with the uh, the Ontario Elementary School Federation about this uh, a couple of days ago, uh, and they're very concerned about the number of teachers that are already off sick, uh, and some that may be a little nervous about going back into the classroom because they don't feel as if it's going to be a safe working environment for them. Uh, I know the province tried uh, to, to, or to address this issue a couple of days ago when they announced that they were going to extend the, uh, the hours that, uh, that, that retired teachers and administrators could come back and do. But that might have sounded good on paper, Mike, but the reality is I think there's something like 143,000 people that are eligible for that. Only about 60 of them have said, yeah, we're sort of interested in that. So that's not going to be the answer. That We, we don't know yet uh, if teachers don't feel safe and if they don't think it's a proper working environment uh, or if they're already sick. And that's what we're being told that now that if you show symptoms, don't come into the classroom. What are we going to do about the shortages within the school itself? 
Yeah, Bill, that's exactly why I'm calling on the premier to be transparent with the numbers of what's going on in schools. Uh, that is the best way to ensure that education staff, teachers, and other staff feel confident. It's the best way to ensure parents and students feel confident. Uh, I've had some, you know, really productive meetings, both with school board trustees, with um, directors of education, and with teachers unions. And all of them agree that we want kids back in school. All of them agree that we want to support our kids. And all of them agree that we have to make the investments to ensure schools are safe. And we have to be transparent with everyone on, you know, what's happening in our schools. And so, you know, the Ford government's decision not to report COVID cases in schools uh, to me, undermines the confidence that we want people to have in our schools. And so why not just be honest and transparent with people about things like the number of N95 masks, the number of COVID cases, the number of HEPA filters? Like, let's just be honest with people. So one, they can have confidence and two, so they can make uh, informed decisions, whether it's a teacher deciding to go to work or parents and students deciding uh, to go into the schools. Well, let's talk about the reporting method, because I think that's one of the major points that I've heard from parents over the last couple of days. And I'm sure when we open the lines up in just a couple of minutes here and, uh, and get some parent response, uh, we're going to hear an awful lot about this as well. As you say, the, the, just to, I'll do the broad strokes on this and I'll get your comment on this. As you mentioned, uh, they're not going to identify the testing results. Uh, that's one of the things that I think is troubling to an awful lot of people. Uh, the other thing is that uh, if there's an outbreak with 30 percent of the staff and students in the school are absent, uh, they will get a letter. I guess they're going to talk to the public health department in that community, and, and I guess the parents will get a letter. But that seems to me like the horse is already out of the barn. As you say, previously, if there were one or two cases, even in a classroom, parents were informed so they could make a decision as to whether or not they wanted to send their child. We're not going to find that out until there's 30% of the school population. Yeah, and so this is, I, I think it was a bad move, a bad decision by the Ford government to, to not be transparent, to not be just really clear about the number of COVID cases in schools. Um, we know we know that having kids back in the classroom is so important to their mental health, to their um, addressing the learning gaps that so many children have faced uh, because of being forced to do so much online learning. And one of the best ways to, you know, ensure, address those mental health issues and reduce anxiety and build confidence in the safety of our schools is to be transparent with people and reporting what's happening in our schools. And so the decision not to do that to me makes absolutely no sense. It actually undermines, I think, the important role that we all need to be playing now uh, to be mobilizing around ensuring that our schools are safe, that students and educators feel confident about um, being in class. And if you're, you're not going to be transparent and honest with people about case counts, it just undermines that public confidence. Uh, and so, you know, I've been calling on the Ford government now uh, to just bring in a dashboard that like reports on these key metrics to ensure to help ensure that we have public confidence in our schools. I'm glad to see the testing that's going to be coming out here. The fact that they're not going to result and show the results of this, I think, is is somewhat problematic. The other thing that that I wanted to get your your opinion on here, 
uh, was the as the physical environment within the schools themselves. Uh, both Minister Lecce and the Premier previously have said that they've been working diligently, I think was the word that they used, uh, to address all the HVAC issues and things of this nature. And, and one of the comments Mr. Lecce made yesterday was that every school in Ontario has, uh, has been upgraded. Now, I don't know what that means. Uh, whether they've cleaned the windows or put an air conditioner in, or they have not addressed all the HVAC issues. Because I know for a fact, for instance, the Hamilton Board of Education says there's still about 13 or 14 schools that probably aren't going to get done for the next year and a half to two years, which goes back to my point from a couple of minutes ago. Is this a safer environment for kids to be in here because of, of some of the problems that have been you know, dealt with previously or at least addressed previously? Vis a vis, you know, the, the physical building itself and the number of students in each classroom. That still seems to be an issue for many people. Yeah, absolutely, Bill. And it, it really gets back to this is exactly why we need to be honest and transparent with educators, parents, students, the public uh, about the condition of every school. So we need to know which schools have had proper ventilation installed and which have not. The ones that have not, do you have adequate HEPA filters available, uh, sized appropriately for every classroom? Does that school have N95 masks available for all staff and students? Are we going to be honest with people and transparent with people about COVID outbreaks in those schools? And if they do happen and letting parents know so informed decisions can be made. Like to me, that's what would build confidence uh, in our schools among parents, students, educators, and the public. And so I just continue to call on the premier, be transparent, be honest, let people know exactly what's happening in each and every school. So parents can make informed decisions, educators can make informed decisions, and we can have confidence in our schools because it is important to have our students back in class and we need to be clear that we're making, the government needs to be making the investments to ensure that the public has confidence in the safety of our schools. And, and I'm listen, I don't want any government or any board of education to make some rash decision and say, oh my God, we got 10 cases, let's shut everything down and close the schools. I, that, that's, that's not, I think, what anybody's looking to do here. But I find it troubling, and, and we'll find out how our listeners feel about this in just a couple of minutes, uh, that the government said, look, trust us. Uh, we're not going to give you as much information as we have over the last couple of years, but just trust us on this. Uh, I, I don't know if they've, they've, they've achieved that level of trust right now, and I think there's a lot of skepticism out there. Yeah, I'd agree with you on that. And, and again, it's just why it's so important to be uh, transparent with people. Um, you know what, I, I can tell you, I've, I've met with, with uh, a number of teachers, uh, with lo local union leaders. The educators are working so hard to be there for our students. Uh, met with school board trustees, um, education staff. Everyone is working incredibly hard to be there to support our students. And the Ford government needs to be honest with people about what's going on in our schools. That's how you restore, that's how you restore confidence and trust. And that's how you ensure that everyone has the information they need to make informed decisions. And so, you know, once again, Bill, I think I've said this about four or five times this morning, you know, I really call on the premier, be transparent with people. It is so important that people know what is exactly what is going on in their children's schools. 
Green Party leader, Mike Schreiner. Mike, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. Hey, my pleasure. Anytime, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's talk about the pandemic. Let's talk about the restrictions that are in place. Let's talk about the uh, limits on capacity. Uh, the fact that, uh, you know, Toronto Maple Leafs are playing at the Scotiabank Centre, but you're not allowed in there. You watch it on TV, but you can't get in the arena. Same thing with Montreal. And then... Then you switch the channel over to the uh, to the the game in Boston last night, and there's uh, fifteen thousand people in the stands enjoying the hockey game. And you say, "Hey, how come they can do this and we can't?" There are a number of people that are raising that question in, in various forms. And uh, there was an op-ed piece in the National Post the other day uh, by uh, Jordan Peterson, uh, Professor Jordan Peterson, who of course is a man not without controversy on many different facets, uh, things like gender identification and things of this nature. But this this was really, if I could characterize it as a bit of a rant. Uh, and I'm sure something that a lot of us have felt basically saying, you know, over the holidays, he, you know, he couldn't travel the way he wanted to. There were holdovers and it's all because of COVID can't see the people he wants to see, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So emotions that I think we've all dealt with in some way, shape or form over the last little while, which has led to the discussion and the debate about maybe all these policies that governments are enacting right now are really hurt, causing more harm than good. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, if we got rid of all these, maybe our mental health would be a lot better. I, I'm not so sure that there's a strong argument for that. And I, I wanted to get some expert opinion on this. And I, I'm only going to use the piece here from the National Post as, as kind of a, a, a launching pad for the conversation about whether or not we should open things up again or whether there's some validity and some common sense behind the idea that says, look, it, until these numbers for the pandemic go down, uh, we're going to have to just tow the, the course here for the next little while anyway. To talk about this, uh, so pleased to welcome back to the program, Dr. Kerry Bowman. Dr. Bowman, of course, is a bioethicist and assistant professor in the Department of Family and Community Medicine at the University of Toronto. Uh, doctor, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time today. Happy to do so. Doc, we're all suffering in one way, shape, or form, doctor, from COVID fatigue. We're tired of this. We're tired of the limitations. We're tired of just about everything that's gone on over the last two years. Uh, and then we do look to the south, for instance, at, and at sporting events and a number of other things or restaurants down there and say, hey, how, they're doing this. Uh, why can't we do this? I, I, that, that may be the easy look, way to look at a situation like this. But then I look yeah. at the rising numbers of Omicron and say, wait a second here. Uh, watch what you wish for. Uh, where, where are we mentally when it comes to, to this debate? Well, mentally, we're not in a good place. I mean, we've never been more stressed or more pushed to more extremes. Uh, you know, one of the I, I actually really like the article and I, I realize perhaps people listening haven't read it. The article, meaning the, the Jordan Peterson article, yeah. because, you know, he did something that very few people are doing in which he looked at the big picture. We don't really look at the big picture. We look at how are we going to manage this from a public health point of view? But what this means for the very fabric of a society and I, I, you know, I, I don't agree with him on everything, but certainly I, I thought it was very refreshing to see someone looking at the big, big picture of what this means to the fabric of a society over a prolonged period of time. And, you know, his, his general statement is that we're eroding the kind of complex systems that we all live within in a very negative way that we may have a very hard time ever recovering from. So I appreciate that. So let's just look at the American Canadian, you know, 
that's a good place to start. Yeah, yeah, it's always a good place to start. And boy, as Canadians, we do a lot of we do a lot of this, don't we? But uh, <laughs> yeah, the, one of the problems is we don't have good data. We do not know exactly how much Omicron is out there, and the hospital data is still pretty confusing as to who's actually admitted with Omicron as opposed to who has been admitted and picked up Omicron. Um, you know, so those are. The hospitals say those that, that data doesn't mean much, but it does to us in the public, right? So, so we don't always fully know what we're doing. You know, the Americans, however, you know, they believe, and this isn't a criticism. I have a lot of respect for how they live. Um, I have a lot of respect for how we live too. But, um, you know, they, they're much more tolerant of losses, including even death rates, if, you know, rather than completely restricting a society. That's how they see it. They a lot of Americans realize they pay a price for their their sort of views of of freedom. Um, you know whether we would do that within Canadian society and whether that's fair is another question. Generally, throughout the pandemic, the U.S. has had higher death rates significantly than we have had. But can we continue to live like this? I think we can't. And I think we have to wait out this Omicron. And, you know, there's some slight evidence that maybe we're reaching a crest of this wave. And, and in the weeks and months ahead, it'll get better. But I think in those weeks and months ahead, we've got to really rethink a lot of stuff. We cannot live like this. You know, what we are doing to children for, you know, I see that as almost the top of the list. And what we're doing to our own mental health, as well as the general social fabric, you know, systems are beginning to, to really not function well because of the weight of this pandemic. And, you know, I how do pandemic ends is the million dollar question. And always it's this assumption that it's it, it's the disease itself, but sometimes it's the attitude towards the towards the, the pandemic that needs to change. So so we will see. But I think we have to take a long, sober look when Omicron begins to subside as to what we're going to do. Now, will will the you know variants keep coming at us? Well, if we don't do anything about the global situation, they will. And Canada, I hate to say, is pretty well leader of the pack. We're going down in history for, for vaccine hoarding above almost all other nations. Now, look, it's getting better. And, and can, it's not that Canada's done nothing, but boy, we've done very little. And so we're really not dealing with the source of this problem as well, which is very problematic. So to answer your question, I don't really know because we you know, we're kind of in the dark. But I think when we get a little further past this massive wave, we need a national rethink on how it is we want to live if these waves keep coming at us, because I don't think we can live like this. Well, I'm, I'm worried about the impact it's having. Well, you know, let's let's pick a topic, healthcare. Uh, you know, I, I don't know how many people I know right now that have had medical procedures that have been postponed or canceled, uh, and not just surgeries. I mean, you know, you, you, I, I keep mentioning the part that, you know, I, got, I know a guy that's supposed to be having an angiogram test uh, at a hospital in Hamilton here, and it keeps getting delayed. And he says, I, they, they booked it because they think there may be something wrong. And he says, I'm never going to find out. Uh, that causes a great deal of angst and stress, as you might imagine. And, and then, you know, plus, you know, people with joint replacement surgeries, all this other sort of stuff. Uh, the backlog is astronomical. I don't know how we're ever going to recover from that uh, and the impact that's going to have on the healthcare system. And I juxtapose that, though, doctor, with two years ago when this whole thing started. We were scared, and I think justifiably so, because we'd never seen anything like this in our lifetimes. And we saw pictures of, of freezer trucks taking bodies out of hospitals. You know, there were, the, the death rates were astronomical, and we thought, oh, my God, what are we going to do? That's not happening anymore. That's not to suggest people aren't getting sick and some people are dying, but certainly not to the magnitude uh, that they were back then. So, I mean, should it still be 
you know, as restrictive as, as it seems to be these days? Are we, are we over, is this, I hate to use that expression, but is this overkill now? It may be, it may be. And I, I, I would also say, you know, people's, I think people's toleration, which has already begun with kind of, this is going to sound a little harsh, but epidemiologists running the country is really coming to an end, uh, you know, because they're doing their job, by the way, and they're doing it very responsibly. They're looking at what they are trained and hired to do, but there's a whole lot more to the organization of a society than simply what disease threats are sitting on the horizon. And, you know, one of the things I worry about with Omicron, and this is a bit of a downer, is, is you know, Omicron may not be the worst it. If we get it hit with a worse variant, sigma, who knows? I mean, I'm talking the Greek alphabet here, something yeah. worse with a higher fatality rate. You may have people just saying we're not doing this again. Like when we really have a more major threat, because having said that, though, there's so many unknowns about Omicron. And as we've heard so many times, and it's all true, even though it may be, you know, less people get less sick because the volume is so high, the numbers become similar or worse. So I, I, I'm very much hoping, stress the word hoping, that the early indications, and they, they're not bulletproof, I want to be clear on that, that, that the crest is getting close. Um, you know, I, we have a, a major rethink. But we also need a healthcare system that has more resilience, um, because this may keep coming at us. And, um, and we really don't. I don't think we'll ever look upon our healthcare system in the same way. And, you know, just to your point, people with, with stress, with... Um, you know, whether it be cardiac or early cancers or something, stress makes you sick. And if you already have health problems and this prolonged, you know, mental health stress on top of physical stress, I mean, this could do people in. I mean, it's really destructive stuff. Well, because it plays games with your head, doesn't it? And, it you does. know, to, to go back to my point about my neighbor here that's, that's you know, waiting yeah. for this angiogram. Uh, and he said, you know, according to him, I'm not letting, oh, I'm not going to mention his name. So I guess I could, he just said, well, yeah, his cardiologist said there's kind of a dark spot there when we did this thing and we want to make sure it's okay. But now he doesn't know. And, and then you get a new story like Bob Saget, who dies in his sleep the other day at 65. And you think, oh my God, is that going to happen to me? Uh, you know, you, you starts playing games with your head in situations like well, that. Well, it plays games with your head. And for a lot of those people, they're sitting, you know, in isolation in their own home in front of a laptop or less. Like we're not interacting with a lot of people that we would normally get support from. And that includes people in the workplace, you know, that sure. what used to be water, you know, what's the term water cooler conversations. They haven't happened in years, you know, um, so, you know, all of this sort of compounds. Um, so we will see. But I, I think we need a major rethink. And, and so I, I actually like, as I said, I like the article by Jordan Peterson, maybe a little too much about telephone banking in there. But um, it, it was, you know, and I'm sure some people will hopefully look it up. I, I think he had a point. But, you know, what, what he didn't talk about, and in fairness, it's not his skill, is, is what this means in terms of death rates and the kind of price we're paying. He didn't really go there. And so that's, that's always, you know, a, an important question. Well, I guess what we're looking for here, and, and you know, he, he uses the, well, the, sadly, it's the same phrase Donald Trump used to do, that, you know, the cure is worse than the, the disease itself. Uh, that was his perspective on that, and uh, that kind of jumped out at me. But what I guess we're missing here, though, Doctor, is a rethink to say, yeah, yeah, this is serious stuff. I mean, we're not out of the woods yet, and, and Omicron is something that we need to, to, to get serious about. But uh, can we just lighten up a little bit? Uh, you know, I, I mean, you know, I, I went to the Grey Cup in Hamilton here a couple of months ago, 25,000 people there, and uh, 10 days later, actually three days later, they said, yeah, well, you know, we're not going to do that anymore. It was fine. 
there, there was yeah. no breakout. There was no, you know, we, we were all there, people wearing masks and doing what we're supposed to do. And yeah, Omicron was on our minds because we'd heard that this was going to be a concern. But now all of a sudden you can't go to a Leaf game, you can't go to a Raptors game. And I think a lot of people are justifiably asking, is this, this over the top? Do we really need to be doing this? Yeah. And are we not about to, I'm just trying to remember the timeline here. Are we not, we meaning Ontario, and I, I can't speak for the rest of the country, I'm not sure, but are the Ontario restrictions are time limited to a couple of weeks unless they're extended. And I think mm -hmm. we're getting close to that now. And I, I think they probably will be extended. I hope not, but we'll see. Uh, so we really don't know. Yeah. I, I mean, it's a difficult time, but I'm going to say what a thousand people have said, Omicron is a game changer, but I think it's also a game changer in terms of our attitude. I, I think, and you know, a lot of people when this is over will say, well, look, I already had it. And whether they're right or wrong in terms of immunity, you know, I, I'm done with this. So we'll see. And, you know, we may see people want, are willing to tolerate you know, greater risk the way the Americans are. That's still an ethical problem, though, because it's the vulnerable that are going to get sick and die. So it's not a question of, you know, how much risk you or I are willing to take. It's also the protection of other people. So it's complicated stuff, but I think a, a rethink is absolutely due once we get past the crest of this wave. Well, and we've noticed that, haven't we, with some of the stats we've seen, even the hospitalizations with Omicron. Yes, there are people that are vaccinated that uh, that are in hospital, even though they've been double-vaxxed, maybe even some of the booster. Oh, triple but an awful lot triple of them are people yeah. that had, pre, as you say, pre-existing conditions. Uh, and, you know, they're exposed to it, and it, it hits them harder than it might the other person. But yeah. at the same time, at where at where's where's the personal responsibility to say, you know what, I'm living with my grandparents, and, and you know, he's got a cardiac condition. Uh, maybe I better be careful about where I go, as opposed to saying, okay, nobody can go to the game. Maybe that guy should say, you know, let's let's just wait till things. Cool no, there down is a the personal bit. responsibility, but remember, some people are vulnerable. You know, you you've got yeah. people that that are high risk and absolutely have to work, and they've got work. You know, that's perhaps non-professional where they have to be interacting with the public and there's no choice. Otherwise, the rent isn't going to be paid. So, you know, there's all and, you know, when you get to these nitty gritty cases, there's a lot of difference between Canadian and American society in, in terms of how we perceive those types of things. Um, that's where Canada and, and the U.S. really come in in different places. Um, so we will see where it goes. But I don't think we can go on like this, um, you know. And, and again, I'm going to repeat what I said. My worry is, you know, if there's a worse variant that comes along, and I'm hoping there never will be. But, you know, have we not sort of worn everyone out with this Omicron reaction? Well, yeah, exactly. And, and as you say, uh, it's not as if this is just going to disappear if we pretend, you know, want it to disappear. You can't will it away. I mean, we're dealing with Omicron because we're told it probably started in South Africa. They had a 21% vaccination rate. Uh, so there was, there was a, you know, the, an opportunity for the, the, the virus to mutate and do what it did. So maybe maybe the takeaway here is vaccination, but uh, even then well, we're not going to eradicate. Holy, yeah, and, and you know uh, my my position, and I say this so much, people get sick of hearing it sometimes. But um, you know, I, I work globally a lot. I was in Yemen twice in the last few months. Their vaccination rate is 0.5. I I suspect Omicron probably came even beyond South Africa, some other African nation where it's very very low, and you know. As we freak out about vaccine mandates and chasing down the unvaccinated and all these things, we're missing the big picture that the risk to all of us is the global situation. Ethically, it's a violation. You know, epidemiologically, it's dangerous. And we have a government that's pretty indifferent to the whole thing. We, you know, we really have a national view of this. Most countries do, by the way. Like, what country, what person is showing global leadership on this? 
the WHO, but, you know, they, they had so much of trust in them, you know, eroded under the Trump administration and through the, their relationship with China that a lot of people don't, you know, put a lot of stock in what they say. But what country, what person is showing tremendous global leadership in this pandemic? There is no one. It's just not there. And it's very worrisome. Uh, let's see, there's Boris Johnson partying at 10 Downing. There's, I, I get your yeah. point, I think. <laughs> Doctor, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much for taking some time with us today. I really party. enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> You're very welcome. Take, Take care. care. Dr. Kerry Bowman, of course, from the uh, University of Toronto. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, I'll talk about your cars and automobiles. And a number of things that are going on. There's a story that uh, I, I want to delve into in just a couple of seconds here about uh, your, your road test. For those of you who want to get licenses, et cetera, uh, you, we know, of course, because of COVID, there's a huge, big backlog of people that wanted to get tests and just haven't been able to get them. But uh, the government has responded by, well, shall we say, small-sizing uh, the road test itself. And, and I'll give you the details on that in a couple of minutes uh, with our next guest. And I also want to talk about uh, a recent uh, piece that she put in uh, that, uh, that talks about what's in new cars and uh, whether or not we need all these uh, bells and whistles that are on that. We're talking, of course, about our good friend Lorraine Summerfield, author and auto columnist uh, with The Spectator and with Driving.ca. Uh, Lorraine, a pleasure to have you back on the program. Hope you're doing well these days. No, not bad, Bill. How are you? Yeah, I'm hanging in, hanging in there. Uh, I, I love the piece that you put in here called, uh, you know, uh, rationing microchips start by ditching these common quote unquote improvements. Uh, you are resonating with an awful lot of people. I have a, a late model car and an awful lot of these things. And and as you, your argument starts off, I think quite legitimately saying, look, at, we have a shortage of all these semiconductors and all these things that run these things. Maybe it's time to reassess whether we need all this stuff on these cars. Well, the manufacturers themselves are pulling chips out of things. I've, I'm telling people, if you go buy a new car, make sure it has all the things that it's advertised as having, because they are opting out of certain things. So be careful. Like, ask questions before you buy. But the stuff they're giving us late, you know, in the last 10, 20 years, push-button starts are probably my biggest bugaboo. I can't stand them. I think they've proven to be a failure, and I can't believe that this is something we're still allocating chips to, if you want to put it that way. Yeah, you spent a lot of time on that. I'm interested in this. I, I see the good, the bad, and the ugly in this. I mean, it's, it's kind of convenient, I guess. Uh, and and you, you pointed out something about sometimes people forget to turn them off, and I thought, that's ridiculous. And then I remembered, gee, I did that about six months ago. Uh, where I came back on a Saturday afternoon from getting groceries and everything, and about 10 minutes after I came in the house, the neighbor knocked on the door and said, you know, your car's still on, and your radio's blasting, and we can hear it in our house. Oh, jeez, okay, didn't know. You know. People have died. People have died yeah. of carbon monoxide poisoning. There's a massive class action lawsuit in the U.S. that's been going on for 10 years about this. And there's also the problem that um, you can turn the car off without it being in park in some instances. There's a lot of things they've worked out Finally, I was on a junket once and somebody, the key fob looked like the press kit. They do that. They make them cute. And someone drove 300 kilometers in a car that didn't have the key in it because it was close enough to start it. They thought they had it because of this press kit. So 300 kilometers we had to make up to get the key back to the original car. So they've, you know, they've overcome that. Now a chime goes off. If you drive away, you know, the key has to be in the car for it to start most of the time. Why didn't they iron all this out before they did it? I will never know. Human behavior will never be that confusing. <laughs> you know, we're going to do well, this. And, and you point something else out about the key fobs, too. Uh, it makes it easier to steal a car. 
Incredible. I mean, you know, we've all seen, you know, MacGyver, you know, reaching under the dashboard and, you know, touching some wires and bingo, you start the car yeah. and off you go. But now there are electronic devices that can basically find your key fob, even though you're asleep in your bedroom, uh, and they can they can start your car and take it away from you. Well, a, a relay booster. They just have to yeah. see in proximity. They boost the signal. They take your car. You never know. But what they're doing now, it's even worse. I mean, A, I hate that I have to have a Faraday cage in my house to keep my key in that's ridiculous but what they're doing now is you have a onboard diagnostic port you know you put a it's how your mechanic can tell you what's wrong with your car they're just going right into that and reprogramming their fobs and leaving so your key now has nothing to do with your car nothing and you don't even know until you wake up so they don't they don't need the the key itself the fob they also don't even need to boost it anymore. They can just reprogram their own from a handheld little device and go poof, and they're off. That's how they steal your car. So the fact they're dangerous, they're more easily stolen. What's the point of this? I like a key. You take the key out, you know you're in park, you know you've taken the key out of the car and it's not running anymore. I don't know where we got so fancy. I don't know anyone that loves it. I think it's ridiculous. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and we uh, you're right. I mean, I contrast that. Our daughter still has she drives a Jeep and it, there's a key and I, I I'm always where's the where's the push button? Oh, wait, I need a key. Hey, this is kind of neat. It, yeah. It's kind of like a retro car. I mean, it's a beautiful machine and everything, but I mean, you know, if you don't have the key, you don't go anywhere. Uh there's a key fob and that unlocks the car and that's fine, but you need to still have the key to do that, which which makes all kinds of sense. Uh, simply because of that. And as a matter of fact, our, our tech expert told us with all the technology that's going on, and as you've written about in the past, Lorraine, basically we're, what we're driving right now is one big computer. It's, it's not Absolutely. even the car that we knew 30 years ago. It's, it's a, you know, and w computers can be hacked. And, and, you know, somebody can hack into your computer and actually drive you to Cleveland if they want uh, they because they can basically while control the car. driving and stop your car. Yeah. They, they can do it. They're just not doing it right now, but they can absolutely do it. And manufacturers know it. They know it. I, I just don't see a lot of the stuff. The word infotainment should be thrown away. Your car is not supposed to be entertaining you. Those big screens, having to go down three levels of screens to turn on your, your seat heater or to turn up the volume on the radio, this is so dangerous. We need knobs. And I'm not a Luddite. Like, I, I understand the no, I get it, aspects yeah. of things. But everything packed into the screen is cheaper for the manufacturers to put all the things there. The new Rivian, a colleague of mine drove it. To, to adjust the mirrors, you have to go down into the screen. This is outrageous. This is ridiculous. And if we've got a shortage of chips, ditch them for this stuff. Give me back toggles and buttons. But, you know, I, I guess, you know, it's new and it's shiny. And I guess, you know, these things, I mean, I saw these bells and whistles. And, of course, you're right, half the stuff that's in my car, I still don't know how to do. Uh, because I haven't read the manual to the extent that I should. Usually it's it's like, oh, my God, how do I do this? I better go to that chapter. But I haven't read it. I don't understand that. Put the manual in the bathroom. Put the manual yeah, in the pretty bathroom. much. Yep. Yeah. And it's the only way you can keep up with these sorts of things, and it is it is awfully frustrating. And I have one of those things. I mean, you know, when I, I, I my my car, the, the the screen on the front here is probably bigger than one of the TVs I had when I was going through college, uh, and it, you you can't help but look at it uh, because of the information that's there. But you're right; I can't switch from AM to FM or for, to, to satellite unless I basically stop the car and start going through there because I can't do it while I'm driving. And but people do. It's so distracting and dangerous. We're worried about drunks and speeders. Uh, this is this is the new thing. The distraction is beating them both. It's terrible. So is is there a discussion going on about these sorts of things, or are they just saying, "Oh well, that's just the way things are"? Well, I, I think what the evolution I've watched over the last dozen years or so is they introduce all this fun stuff, 
the infotainment stuff and connecting everything so you can, you know, have Twitter read out loud to you or whatever. And we all scream and go, that's so distracting. What are you doing? So then they add in lots of, you know, safety features. They bring them down the food chain faster because they have to protect drivers from themselves and being distracted by the crap they put in there in the first place. So this is, you know, go back to basics. And and having said that, another thing I say in the piece is that in Canada, everyone should have heated seats in their cars. And it, it's not, to me, that's not a luxury anymore because we have idling bylaws, which mean nothing. If your seat heats up in about 30 seconds, 60 seconds, you're warm enough. You can gently, you know, warm up your car as you drive. It doesn't have to idle for 15 minutes to warm up the cabin if you're already warm and comfortable. So there's things we should be doing with the, you know, advanced tech, and there's things we shouldn't be doing. Well, and you you bring up one of my favorites, and I mean, I, I, I'd buy my car all over again for this one feature, and that's the heated steering wheel. Oh, yeah. uh, you know, in, in, in the real world, when I actually had to go to the radio station to do this show, uh, I'm I'm usually up by four thirty quarter to five in the morning, and, and I tell you in January it's pretty damn cold, yeah. uh, and and I don't want to run the car for fifteen minutes to warm it up. But I hit that button and that warm steering wheel. I don't I don't like to drive with winter gloves on. I just like to be able no, to feel the steering wheel, and it's, it's 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 a perfect thing to have. It is. No, it heats up the part of you that needs to be heated up, and then you can safely go. No idling. You don't have to wait for the whole cabin to warm up. It, it's just in Canada. <laughs> like I think that's uh, like I have a fairly entry level car. It's got both, and I would never look back. It's no, it's it's go. it's, and and my wife's car I don't think has it, uh, which is problematic. And she's got a nice car too. It's just a it's it doesn't have all the bells and whistles that mine does. Uh, and and she misses it. She loves the one thing she likes about my car is got the heated steering wheel. So uh, it's it's something that she, you're right. It should be standard equipment in Canada, right? Well, we use it even old backs driving to, you know, three or four hours to a cottage or something in the summer. Yeah. That's <laughs> great. I, uh, my heat seater is on all, all year long yeah. for that very reason. Yeah. You know, if I'm doing long haul driving, and by that I mean if I'm going up to, you know, Collingwood Blue Mountain for a weekend mm-hmm. or something like that, uh, I like that heat on the back of my lower back. I mean, if you're doing a long drive, you can get pretty stiff pretty easily. Uh, I look at it as a health feature. I think it's a great idea. I think so. <laughs> I want to ask you about... the. Go ahead. Uh, it's a great piece, by the way. People should check this out. Uh, uh, rationing microchips, maybe start by ditching common improvements. Uh, yeah, just give me uh, about my handbrake too. That's the other thing. Yeah, just, well, yeah. Handbrake. Yeah. Yeah, I don't have one. I know, neither do I. It makes me crazy. There's not quite the feeling when you and pull on a little e-brake instead of ratcheting up on a, a handle that you can spin out with. I mean, stop the car with. It's great. Anyway. Well, they got to rethink an awful lot of this stuff. Um, yeah. I want to talk about the driving test and the road test. Uh, we've talked about the backlog, Lorraine, uh, that's gone on because of COVID. And, you know, it's a, some astronomically ridiculous number of people that are waiting and had these things canceled. Uh, and in, so the government has decided to respond and said, okay, we're going to try to go through this backlog here. Uh, they've basically cut the driving test in half, haven't they? Oh, worse than that. I'm writing about it right this second as I'm talking to you. What they've cut, it, it's ridiculous. Um, they've cut out... A three-point turn, parallel parking, and a roadside stop, like pulling over safely. It, a, you can't. We have the worst drivers on the planet. Like our drivers are not good already, and I'll give them that. These kids, most they're overwhelmingly younger people, have had longer to be d- driving and practicing because of the delays. So I understand that, but they're taking away the spatial things. Uh, doing a three-point turn, you, you need to know how big your vehicle is and where it is, and the same, absolutely the same with parallel parking. If we insist on driving bigger and bigger vehicles, which we do, it's more imperative than ever 
that new drivers understand the space that vehicle is taking up. And eliminating those things, that's the most dangerous things to be eliminating. It's we, crazy. in this country, we, we love pickup trucks and we love SUVs. Oh, uh, not all of us, but that, that's those are the predominant vehicles that are being sold these days. Yeah. Uh, and, and I guess that raises the question, are we qualified to drive them? I mean, it's you, driving a, an F-110 is different from driving a you know a sedan. Well, you have to remember, I can get in a 30-foot RV and drive it off the lot with a G license. Yeah. So I, I have an issue with that already. That's a massive, that's a living room. But some of these, the Yukons and Expeditions, all this stuff, they're living rooms as well. They're huge. And if you're living rural and you've got lots of space and that's your job and you need that, I totally get it. But now, because they're popular, our urban cores are choked with these oversized vehicles. You all know it. You go in a parking lot and there's a pickup truck taking up two and a half spaces. Yep. And, you know, it's too wide. And everyone is, oh, yeah, those are the top sellers. That's what's selling. Ford doesn't even make cars anymore. I mean, they're just getting out of it. And I beg people, drive the least amount of car that you need. It's cheaper. It's the best option for you. It's safe. It's like just... Just do this. Instead, bigger, 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 bigger. It's getting insane. And now I think of new drivers trying to pilot around this massive death machine, which is what it is. It's dangerous to cyclists, pedestrians, children. They can't see them. Put a new driver who can't see anything out of this. And now let's take away the two little tests we have to test whether they can be aware of the space they're taking up in it. Nuts. Well, and, and I know some people are going to say, well, yeah, thank God they got rid of that stupid parallel parking thing. It's essential. I mean, if you live in an urban center, uh, you're going to have to learn to do this. I mean, I, I practiced, I mean, back in the, you know, the 10th century and whatever the hell it was that I got my license. Uh, but that was one of the key parts of this whole thing, because you've got to be able to do that properly. And, and you're right. If you're not trained in it, and as, as you know, the piece I saw on CBC the, the other day, uh, they said they just it's scratched off the tips. They don't even talk about it anymore. And no. I, I, the middle ground here might be maybe you don't need to be tested on it, but should should there at least be some sort of regulation that people that are taking driving lessons should at least be taught how to do this? Well, pe- people tr- teaching driving lessons, instructors, proper instructors are teaching people this. I get it. Good. And they do get tested on this on their first road test. I understand. I, I almost understand what this government is doing, which might be the first time ever. However... <laughs> The final one, it's been a gap. I don't know how much they've driven. A lot of people aren't driving as frequently as they were before. Yeah. You know, like I said, they've had it longer, but have they been using it? I don't know. But to remove this, and if people go, I never parallel park. Do you ever go on vacation? Do you rent a car? Do you, you know, it's a skill. It's a skill you need to have at a time when drivers have less and less skill. They're relying on the cars to do everything for them and fail that. They're relying on the cars to save them. That does not mean we have better drivers. It means we have better cars. And that is a problem. Well, and, and I know, you know, the manufacturers have tried to address that. You mean, you've got some that will actually self-park, uh, yeah. but not everybody can do that. And, and, and again, you're relying on the computer and, you know, better to, to be able to know how to do this manually because the ramifications can be somewhat problematic. Uh, so I'd like to think that's going to happen. I got I to ask you, and I'm glad you're writing about this because it's a fascinating topic. As we are moving more and more towards electronic vehicles, uh, are, are we going further down the rabbit hole with some of these things that we've just talked about? Well, I think what most people are talking about with this stuff is more autonomous vehicles um, rather yeah. than electric. And all the features you have, lane departure and adaptive cruise control, all the stuff that centers your car and everything, those are all features that will be in autonomous cars. We're not getting them anytime soon. Autonomous cars are not coming. People relax. Forget what they keep telling you. 
too many things that have to be in place. So the features are part of autonomous things because the car can judge and do this, but you always have to be in control of that. They do fail. One of the worst ones is the pedestrian avoidance stuff. It doesn't work if you're making a right turn. It fails at night. It fails in the rain. They're getting better, but they have to stop advertising this because people are relying on it and people on the road are getting killed. And this this is wrong. Drivers need to become better, not worse. Instead, we're distracting them like crazy and letting them believe that they're bulletproof because the car will come to a stop if something bad happens. That's just not true. Well, you're right. And I saw that with lane changes, a guy who had a late model car and, and actually got swiped. And he said, well, he says, my, my beeper didn't go off. I said, why didn't you look in the rearview mirror? I mean, the car was there. Yeah. You know, we're, we're relying too much on the technology now, aren't we? Oh, absolutely. Drivers are getting worse and worse and worse, more disengaged, more disconnected from the road at a time when we need them more, not less. Uh, Lorraine, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for taking the time for us today. Really appreciate it. Stay well, and hopefully we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Bill. Take care. Lorraine Summerfield, of course, author and auto columnist. Uh, you can read her column in the Hamilton Spectator and, of course, on driving.ca uh, to get all the latest. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.